Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, you're actually not going to be listening to us at all. Instead, we're sharing an episode from another podcast called How I Learned to Love Shrimp. For context, last year, Finn and I were excited to get to help other people set up creative media projects that discuss ideas related to solving important global problems. One of these projects was by Amy Adeen and James Austin, who began a podcast to, quote, uh, showcase innovative and impactful ways to help animals. Farmed animal welfare is a hugely important issue and one I want to keep learning about. Amy and James are greatly placed to be doing this work. Uh, Amy is the managing director for the creative agency User Friendly and co-founded the charity Animal Ask. Uh, James is the founder of Social Change Lab and has been involved in grassroots movements like Animal Rebellion for several years. Uh, together, they've now almost produced 20 interviews, uh, ranging from talking to the former president of the Humane League uh, to current advocacy work being done in Africa to wild animal suffering. We think that the show is excellent and invite you to subscribe. Uh, to give you a taste, here is their interview with David Coman Hiddy. Hello, my name is Amy. And my name is James. And this is the second episode of How I Learned to Love Shrimp, which is a new podcast about effective ways to help animals and build the animal advocacy movement. And today we speak to Dave Coman-Heidi from Sharpen Strategy about a few different things, mainly his background and how he ended up being the president of the Humane League and how he ended up scaling this organization to a global level with over 120 staff. We also speak to him about this age-old debate of welfare versus abolitionism. And finally, we touch on what he's particularly excited about in terms of new strategies and methods for the animal advocacy movement. So yes, uh, please enjoy the episode and do share if you find it interesting. So hello, welcome everyone. So now we are talking with David Coman-Heidi, who for over the last decade has been running the Humane League and is now a partner at Sharpen Strategy, working to advise the animal movement. So welcome, David. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really happy to be here, James and Amy. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So first, do you just want to talk us through kind of who you are, what you're doing at the Humane League, and how you ended up where you are? Sure. Uh, so I guess my journey begins uh, quite a long time ago, like in, in high school. Um, I left my high school in 10th grade to go to a local community college where I was really focused on uh, philosophy and politics. And that's where I first came across Peter Singer's work, uh, went vegetarian, became really involved and became the president of my uh, political group on campus. And uh, I ended up going to college for politics as well, really thinking I wanted to end up in kind of campaign advising. But after some experience on political campaigns and doing other kinds of advocacy work, uh, landed on wanting to do kind of like um, nonprofit and corporate campaigns and, and public advocacy work and uh, got a job pretty much right out of school, uh, opening up the Humane League's Boston office. So back then it was uh, just like a, really a local group in Philadelphia, Aaron Ross's group in Baltimore as well, which joined up and became part of the Humane League uh, shortly after I had joined. Um, yeah, so th that was my first years, which was doing kind of like local grassroots organizing and some local cage-free campaigns on college campuses um, for the Humane League in the Boston area. Uh, and then from there, we, we kept expanding into new cities, eventually became a national group and then an international group. So a, a lot of different phases uh, during my time at THL where we, you know, broadly just started to shift from doing mostly what kind of outreach and education work towards institutional campaigns and really with a strong focus on corporate campaigns, um, trying to get big companies to make policy commitments that will impact animals and, and reduce their suffering on factory farms. 
Amazing. Such a, um, such a journey, I guess, right from the beginning um, and spanning, you know, right across that decade. Um, a, a really fascinating journey for you, I'm sure, which we're, we're excited to unpack. Um, and do you want to tell us a bit about what you're doing now? Um, so how that transition from, you know, running uh, the Humane League for those that decade and now um, through to the, the consultancy that you have now? Yeah, I uh, so I decided to leave THL. Um, I don't know how long it was now, maybe eighteen months ago or two years ago, something like that. Uh, really, having felt like the the skills that helped me grow THL from a really small group into a large group. Um, you know, by the time I left, it was you know over a hundred employees in multiple countries. Um, I feel like the the skill set for the early phase is very different than the skill set for kind of administering a, a large multinational group. It's not really where my kind of passion and skills lie. And I do think, you know, a, a big part of leadership is kind of understanding when it's time to step back as well and let other people uh, have a crack at things. And I do think that there really is a a problem in the nonprofit sector generally, and, and in animal rights, you see this a lot too, of like founders or early leaders sticking around, probably overstaying their welcome because of this like this change in the needs of the organization not not being noticed by uh, the people in charge, and I, I also just feel like you know I was there since I was like twenty one years old, um, thirty three now, and that was it's just like uh, it was time for a new chapter. So for many reasons, um, yeah, it took a, it took a while to transition. Luckily, I had uh, Vicky Bond, who uh, was my colleague, uh, who's running the UK office, was able to take over in the US. She's incredibly competent and has. Um, a, a much stronger skill set for the needs of the org right now. Um, so I wanted to take the kind of lessons I'd learned in scaling up the Humane League uh, and bring them to other groups in the movement who are in a similar position to where THL was maybe seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. Uh, so these are things like focusing on you know organizational health, planning for growth, strategic planning, fundraising, um, just sharing a lot of the mistakes that I had made over the years as well in, in itself is quite helpful. Um, so I've been partnering with Andrea Gunn, who is the executive vice president at the Humane League with me. Uh, and we've yeah started outreach and, and supporting a lot of groups. Thankfully, we're supported by Open Philanthropy. So this is all kind of pro bono right now for organizations that, that we're working with. Um, yeah. And the, that's the idea is to basically help the growing movement succeed, you know, help, help organizations that are having a, a big impact in their region successfully expand because it's, it's all too often you see groups have a lot of early initial success with a small team. They receive some funding and some attention and just the pressure of growth can really uh, dramatically shrink the impact potential of the org, cause conflict, cause the good people to leave, so on and so forth. Nice. Um, yeah, I do find it interesting you mentioned that. I do find it like it'd be, it'd be somewhat surprising if the person who started an organization was the best person to continue that for like the next 10, 20 years. I do find it quite surprising that the founders do tend to stick around for a long time, even though many, many amazing people could run big organizations. I think it's quite a yeah, brave leap. So yeah, that's really great you did that. Um, maybe we can chat you know, straight into the, actually the, because it kind of came up the running a big org topic. It seems like something that is maybe particular about you or the Humane League um, is that, like you said, it's it's really big now. It's a huge global organization, over 100 people. And in a way, it's somewhat held up as like the beacon for some really successful animal advocacy. So in terms of one thing you mentioned there was like you said you made some mistakes along the way that you don't want others to pick up on or like repeat. Do you want to touch on a few of those mistakes and how you try to help <laughs> others avoid those? Yeah, sure. Well, 
<clears throat> I guess because it's such a long period of time and so much rapid growth over that time, I think about like the kind of different phases in the life cycle of a growing group. You have kind of like the early days where it's just a few people and it's more like being in like a, a band or something almost where you have these like incredibly close relationships with four or five people. Everyone is kind of doing everything, you know? So like we just are all, it's very DIY. Everyone is playing every role. We all have like complete perfect information about what every other person is doing. Um, and this compared to the end state of, you know, like 130 people all around the world, it, it couldn't be more different. And there's all these steps along the way, you know, you get to 10 people and all of a sudden you lose the ability to just like have a very tight relationship and knowledge about what everyone's doing all the time. You start specializing. Then you get to 25 people. And again, like all the systems break down, internal communication becomes a big challenge. Um, you know, the, the operational needs of the organization are quite different and challenging. Then you get to 50 people, then you start expanding internationally. Each one of these stages, I feel like um, I failed to anticipate how challenging it would be getting to that next step in many ways. So it's very hard to kind of um, give too many specifics other than I'll say just thematically, like planning for growth is just one of the biggest stumbling blocks but that I struggled with that I know. Every, I mean, it's just growing is very, very difficult, even if you do plan for it. And I think um, there's just is not enough thought put into um, what the next stage of the group is going to look like and what the needs are going to be. So for example, like very commonly, what uh, I would do, what I see groups doing all the time, is you get you have a program that's working well, you're excited about it, there's funding available for it. So you get funding to hire like five more people to participate in this program. Um, and what you fail to anticipate is like, okay, who's going to manage like the payroll needs of those people, especially if they're in another country, who's going to onboard and train them? Do the managers for them who are really good at this program know how to manage people? And do they know how to delegate the work properly to what they're doing? And that's, ju that's just like a microcosm of like, you know, the, the effects of all these decisions um, that uh, result from growth. So I think that is the biggest theme that we're trying to pass on to the groups we're working with. Um, I also think another thing that I really struggled with as a, as a um, leader of the group was kind of giving up the, the work itself, I think is really challenging. So for me, like my passion was always doing the campaigns. Like I love pressure campaigns. I like corporate outreach. For me, this was uh, a, a huge part of the excitement of the job. And I think an early mistake I made was doing that work myself for too long because I enjoyed it and not. Yeah, realistically, you know, there are people on the team um, who were better at the, you know, specific components of the job than me. And I was just holding on to it out of enjoyment, essentially, or out of like, um, you know, just resistance to change, not wanting to give things up, fear of delegation, all, all these common things. So I think that's something that is very, very common is that, you know, and, and again, this actually points to what we were talking about before, the difference in kind of skills between what's needed at the beginning of a group and, and like after growth, where at the beginning, you need someone who has a very like DIY mindset. I'm willing to go out and learn how to do the taxes. I'm willing to go out and learn how to set up a website and do all these things and actually like execute things, hold myself accountable is so different than the skill set of like, I'm really good at delegating things and managing people. It's like, it's I, in fact, it's probably like negatively correlated, these two personality types. Um, so I think that's something I really regret was like, e even though I enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun, I think um, I, I held on for too long uh, is, is one key example that I think I see echoed in, in organizations everywhere.
I can definitely, yeah, definitely imagine that, especially being involved from so early on. Is Was there a moment that you knew or kind of felt that this like baby that was yours and, and those other early members of the team um, knew that that initial phase of it changing from this thing that you felt like you had a lot of control over into something that was growing? And at that moment, if that isn't identifiable, do you feel like the it was always a case of of wanting the growth or was there some sense of like actually what if we just did stay as this kind of core team of like five or ten like is that was that attractive at that time to not be, be focused on the growth uh I think it was definitely um kind of like a thousand incremental changes rather than some specific moment but there were de- I mean some of the kind of key inflection points were uh like the first time we received a big grant from OpenFill um so we had been at about, I don't know, $400,000 maybe, and we're kind of four to, four to 500000 And we are essentially, we're just like a bunch of local groups combined together as the Humane League. But we were each kind of like a mini nonprofit in a city because we were doing our own fundraising, doing our own uh, campaigns locally, our own leafleting, and so on and so forth. Um, and this was a time of transition to becoming more of a national group. And we got, uh, we, we brought on uh, Michelle as our first full-time fundraiser. And that year we were able to raise a million dollars and we got then a grant from OpenFill for another million dollars over a few years. But this essentially ensured like, wow, we can really hire like a professional staff now. We can start running national campaigns. We can really scale up what we were doing. And I do, that's, it's a very complicated mix of emotions because you are losing that feeling of like being in a band or whatever of like, oh, wow, this is like I've got my tight crew of people and it's so grassroots and we're, uh, you know, like driving around with Warp Tour, doing outreach, li- living out of a car and eating beans out of a can. And it's like this romantic vision of like doing activism. And then all of a sudden it's like, OK, now I'm in the business of like, you know, working with lawyers to put together our HR policies and so on. And this is a very, this is a rude awakening. Um, and when was this? So like, when did when did you join as a paid staff? And when did you get this big million? Then I, yeah, what's the timeline for this? Uh, let's see, I joined in 2010. The I want to say 2016 is maybe when we got the first open fill grant somewhere around there. Um, and yeah, I, I do think, you know, a, a common pattern you see is you get the initial funding for expansion and it's like, you're in the super high of like, wow, my dreams are coming true. But then the reality sits in and it's like, Oh my God, this is like so stressful. Like I'm now accountable for uh, so much responsibility um, hiring all these people, training them, carrying out the work is is very stressful. So um, th- there is something there is like mourning for what you lose as an organization grows. And, and this is another key challenge with growth is how do you keep an organizational culture? You know, it's very easy to have a coherent culture when you're like five friends who all started the work together because you have so much in common and you're excited about the strategy together. Then all of a sudden you're hiring people who may not know any of you might come from a totally different perspective and have a different you know, philosophical basis for why they work on animal rights and so on and so forth. Um, and it, it's really quite challenging to keep that cohesion through growth. Um, so yeah, it's, you do lose a lot as you grow. That's, it's a sad, a sad fact, but it's necessary. So, you know, the, the trade-offs are worth it. Yeah. Uh, having been someone also traveled around the country eating hummus and beans out of the back of a car, I can attest it is pretty fun. So yeah, I can see why more than that. Um, for me, I'm really curious about like what it actually means to be, like the president or running an organization like THL, which is really big, 120 staff. So when you get to that kind of level of size and organization and kind of complexity, like what does your day-to-day look like? What are you actually focusing on on like on a week-to-week basis? And what are the key things on your desk every day? 
Well, I think uh, some of the the core responsibilities um, are really kind of thinking about the, the vision and strategy of the organization and making sure that the leadership of the group, like the leadership team and the staff, that you're communicating with them about that vision and strategy, that you're getting their feedback on it, and then you're kind of like... Uh, kind of painting that picture for everyone uh, of what you'll be doing. I think this is kind of like the, a, a core responsibility of leadership that you have to be setting aside enough time for to be communicating enough with staff and, and leadership and and really making sure that everyone is moving in the same direction. So this is like the, the number one thing you need to be thinking about when you wake up during the day. But that aside, in terms of like what the actual day-to-day is looking like, um, it's, it's cyclical and it, every day is really different. So it's a job where you have to be able to switch very quickly between all right, I'm like at a conference, I'm meeting with major donors and, you know, pitching our, our next year of work or covering our annual review. Then all of a sudden you're like doing check-ins and managing your staff. You're doing, you know, podcast interviews, perhaps like all, you're talking to media, all, all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, there's kind of like a quarterly board meeting cycle. There's the annual fundraising calendar you're looking at. So the end of year, you're very focused on fundraising. Beginning of the year, you might be more focused on like, uh, you know, establishing the budget and the, um, strategic plan throughout the year. So it's like month to month is, is going to be really quite different in what you're looking at. Um, and, and it's really about like where you're at in the calendar, where you're at with like the big campaigns and that kind of thing. I think an area where it's easy to get tripped up is um, like just not allocating your time correctly. And I think that this is like a, a very key skill that I had to develop and where I made a lot of mistakes early on. And this is related to like not delegating enough of the actual work is just focusing too much on the wrong things. Cause there's always going to be like 10,000% available of your time that you could <laughs> like uh, of demands on your time. Um, and you just need to be able to say no, the right things and make sure you're delegating to the right people. So you, you can focus on what you need to. You spoke a lot about um, spending a lot of time for communicating the vision, but I guess also that involves setting the vision. So I, I just, I was curious, how did you actually decide that? How does someone, how do people at THL decide the three, five, 10 year vision? How do you guys decide to go take THL from a national organization to a global um, NGO and set up Open Wing Alliance? Yeah. How did it all come about and who did you work with? And yeah, if you can explain that a bit more, it'd be great. Yeah. The, the Humane League is a very collaborative organization. So we try to see ourselves as, um, a component of the overall movement that we work within. So for us, a, a kind of a major piece guiding our strategy every every year or a few years was how can we um, contribute the most in our role within the movement. So uh, within the U.S., that meant you know th- there's an, a large number of groups that work on the kind of corporate campaigns programs that we do, or even in the early days outreach. So we'd always kind of want to shape our strategy around conversations with them and workshops with them. Um, to make sure we're kind of contributing towards a shared goal. And that was also what informed our international expansion as well. We only really expanded into places where we thought having a group like the Humane League in that region would be quite helpful and not duplicative of other work. Um, But mostly uh, we focused on uh, kind of expanding campaigns through the Open Wing Alliance. So not THL opening offices, but rather um, bringing this vision of a shared campaign um, to other organizations and giving them grant funding and, and training and that kind of thing. Um, but on a year-to-year basis, there was you know uh, many people contributing to the strategy, both all the experts within THL staff and leadership team, but also you know, the leaders of other organizations. And we would use opportunities like the Open Wing Alliance Summit to kind of 
um, get feedback and gather information on on what kind of like regional campaigns should be run, what kind of global campaigns should be run, um, where more resources were needed, that kind of thing. Cool. So okay, Let, let's then let's move on swiftly into I think the, the juiciest topic uh, maybe we'll cover today, which is the age old question within <laughs> animal advocacy, which is. Um, should you support welfare work or should you be an abolitionist? And maybe Dave, do you just want to explain what those two words actually mean and what the two perspectives maybe behind that question are? I think that this debate echoes uh, what you see in a lot of political and social movements where you have on, on one end, the, the kind of the pragmatists and the incrementalists and the people working in the system. And then on the other hand, you have the kind of absolutist, uh, or radical folks who want to create change from outside the system or don't want to compromise or don't want incremental change. Um, so it's very common and expected to, to see these kinds of divides and movements. I think historically within uh, this context of the, the animal protection or animal rights work, um, the specific definitions really began, I don't know, over like maybe two decades ago or something. And essentially it was uh, the, the so-called... Um, abolitionists who uh, essentially think any work that is kind of like incrementally focused on reducing animal suffering is in fact uh, not helpful. It makes the public feel better about the consumption of animals or the use of animals. We need to focus so something on like cage free, completely right? abolishing their use. But yeah, precisely. Right. So the cage free would be, it's like selling out your kind of like working with industry to make people feel better about the, the, the central issue, which is the use of animals. And on the other end would be the, the pragmatists who are really focused maybe on these, like the short-term goals of reducing suffering. So-called pragmatists, um, right? I think it's been debated who's the, who's pragmatic, who's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, this is why I find the, this, the framing of this debate, I don't find it be very helpful because really it's like you have, you could sit on either end kind of politically or, philosophically and be a pragmatist or an absolutist. So I don't, you know, I don't think it's really a, a very helpful framing um, if we're t thinking about like seriously discussing strategy, because I think that there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of folks on like the, the radical side of things or the grassroots advocacy side of things who I, I think are very thoughtful and who, who are thinking about long-term strategy and are kind of excited about uh, a step-by-step -step plan to get somewhere. Um, and, and just like there are folks on the, the pragmatic side who I think are a little too short-term in their thinking and not, not really concerned about how to build up a, a powerful movement. So, um, yeah, I, I, I wish the movement could kind of get past this uh, <laughs> kind of like traditional us versus them. I, I, and I do think it has gotten a lot better. I mean, 10 years ago, it was way, way, way worse. And I think, um, in fact, you know, I'll say like, I, I'm really glad that the grassroots side of the movement in particular has just become so much more focused on activism. Um, and I think that's like a, a lot to credit to, you know, groups like DXE or, um, uh, you know, the, the many kind of spinoff organizations, or I feel like that, that, that side of things has become very focused on like, how do we create more activists? How do we train them in skills? How do we get them to get media attention? Like th these are all serious strategies, I think. And I think previously it was just a lot of kind of internal warfare about, you know, let's critique what other animal groups are doing, um, which is not, not very productive. I think that's probably exactly what it is. Our, easy. Our, <laughs> it is easy. You know, that's true. And it's, it feels good. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I feel like, did you, did you ever feel like as a, as a leader of a, such a 
a big player in this in the the movement in the farmed animal space did you ever feel like you either personally or as an organization had to kind of pick a side I know you spoke previously about the culture change and that being inevitable with growth and do you feel like THL um, it's important to have kind of like a mix of both sides or if THL is in a particular camp and how integral or important is that to how the organization grows and how the culture is shaped within that growth? Yeah, I think um, I think very early on, it did feel important to like kind of stake out a, a side. And, you know, these days, it's like the, the corporate campaigns have been ascendant for so long and are like the most funded thing by a wide margin. It's what a huge number of groups are doing. But if you go back in time to 10 years ago, they were extremely unpopular. <laughs> I mean, it, it, for the Humane League's uh, like local organizational work, we would have to do all the kind of like vegan stuff um, to kind of like gain popularity, gain volunteers, gain donors. <laughs> and then we'd have that was like the the price we would pay to be able to do the hated cage-free campaigns <laughs> that only a few people really support. Right. Um, and this bred, I think, a lot of kind of defensiveness with myself and probably some of the others that we really had to constantly justify what we were doing, that it was morally okay, that we weren't, you know, in bed with the enemy and so forth. Um, so it's funny now, just like the, the total reversal of uh, this state of affairs. And I think that, yeah, I, I was definitely very sucked in by that for a long time, that debate and, and feel very personally annoyed by the claims that we were um, you know, sponsored by industry or disingenuous and wanting to help animals or sellouts or something. Because back then, I mean, most of the people working on the cage free campaigns came from radical activism of some sort, or, you know, <laughs> radical advocacy. This is not like I left my job doing like, you know, consulting at McKinsey to go do <laughs> cage free campaigns or something. So this is like people you knew with animal movement, you kind of work with who are kind of saying these things to you? Or like, wh where were these kind of like critiques or attacks coming from? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I had people uh, interrupt my oh, wow. presentations in Boston, you know, and, and like, you know, do walkouts <laughs> and accuse me of um, hurting animals and these things. And, and it was very, yeah, very common back then. And it, like the animal rights conference back then was so contentious. I mean, you weren't even like allowed to really talk about welfare. So this is like, again, like 2015, 2016 kind of period. And earlier than that, maybe like 12, 13, it was kind of like the height of, I mean, they had a debate with like Gary Francione and Bruce Friedrich at one point. So this was like, imagine <laughs> having an Al Rice conference where like the keynote centerpiece attraction <laughs> is like two of the famous leaders like debating each other. And people were literally like oh cheering God. one side or the other during this debate. I mean, it's like, it's a tragedy to oh, imagine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is so sad. God. I think the the second part of your question, though, Amy, um, I think it's important regardless of whether it's a group like THL that's doing the, the corporate work or, or a grassroots organization. I do think it's important culturally to have this mindset of like humility and uh, collaboration with other groups, even if they're doing really kind of different, uh, uh, taking a different approach to activism and just being open minded. I mean, I think what you see is people just form these identities around like, oh, I'm like a an EA animal person, or I'm like a radical animal person, or I do the corporate campaigns, or I'm a sanctuary person. And the more that that becomes your identity, I think the more closed off your mind comes to being able to change your strategy to give up, look at evidence and say like, oh, maybe I should try this other thing. Or maybe we should, you know, 
redirect funding from this area to another area. It's just, it's much better to hold those beliefs quite lightly and to think like, you know, I'm just an animal person. I work in the movement. Today, I'm doing corporate campaigns. Maybe the, the strategic needs in five years are going to be totally different. And that's okay. And just like, you know, the easier said than done, but just like the more we can just build these friendships across these different parts of the movement, I think just the healthier it will be. And the more seriously we can have conversations without it being about personal identity. Yeah, I think on that topic is a good um, blog post my friend Aiden wrote on the Pax Fauna blog, which I recommend checking out. And basically it's about his own journey from what you might call a rabid abolitionist. So he used to organize uh, for direct action everywhere. And I think he has one particular story when someone from the Humane League came to his university to do some outreach. And just as soon as he heard that she was in THL, the only thing going through his mind was like, oh, welfareist, how dare she? Don't we, we need total animal liberation? Like, what is she thinking? But then since then, he's come around and wrote these beautiful two blog posts on basically that, that idea that you said before, uh, Dave, that like welfare establishment is, is obsolete. Um, most people want to change things incrementally, whether that means banning foie gras then fur or cage-free then other broiler reforms or other chicken forms, so on and so forth. So either way, there's incremental steps. It depends how you kind of want to go about it. So it does seem like this whole debate both hasn't been that useful. And like you said, it's probably lost us like years of goodwill or like infighting. And yeah, would you would you roughly agree with that? Yeah, totally. And I, I think overall, this is an encouraging sign. I mean, I, I see this kind of internal uh, warfare. To me, it, this is my theory I have is kind of like a, a symptom of a completely powerless movement. Like essentially, if you feel like the movement can't achieve anything serious, um, you're just kind of left to arguing about philosophy and theory. And it's not a, and this is like, to me, a, a, a key indicator of the, um, the kind of bogus arguments that you would hear a lot 10 or 15 years ago was that it was just not even trying to engage with like, how would this be like a, that, that early, stage of the abolitionist movement. It's like not even trying to engage with what would you do? It's the best that it can come up with is like, well, we're just going to do like vegan advocacy. Like, I mean, this is just not a very impressive uh, strategic brief on what to do. And I think that as the movement has become more sophisticated and has kind of gained a little bit of traction in various areas, has like gotten serious media coverage, has gotten serious campaign wins, has passed laws, has grown internationally. I think it frees people up a little bit to, uh, I don't know, maybe think in a more positive direction about like, okay, what can we accomplish next? What, what can we do next instead of just this kind of navel gazing uh, that is so tedious and unproductive? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Maybe, James, did you, did you have a particular camp that you arrived at the movement in? Do you feel like you were anything convinced you like one way or the other? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, well, for those who don't know, I also read a bit of Gary Francione's early work, and I think he was the the key proponent of this, like, really, I think his book was actually called Animal Rights and Abolitionist Approach. So he was, like, one of the key kind of proponents of abolitionism, saying, yeah, anything else, it's not doing justice to animals. What we should be asking for is pure, like, end of all animal exploitation. So pretty hard line as far as it goes. Um, and obviously, you read that, and like, it sounds good. You're like, yeah, we shouldn't be asking for, like, moderate reforms. Like, yeah, like, we shouldn't be legitimizing the industry and all this kind of stuff so like morally it felt good and when you just like kind of get involved early on you're a bit of an angry vegan it's like oh yeah this this feels good um even then also you're in that bubble and then everyone else thinks the same way then you're just like this small group hating this other group like hating um 
I see it, but definitely things change over time. I think over time I've been a bit more cognizant of that. It's unlikely that any, like you can't, you can't really be confident in any of these approaches. Kind of like what Dave was saying, we probably need like a, a variety of ways to make change. We shouldn't be t- that confident that any of these two approaches are particularly right. And yeah, rather than being spending all of our energy on internal politics, we should actually be trying to do something and create change in the world rather than just like being angry and also just like trying things out. If we think vegan outreach is the way to go, let's try to do it. Did it change the world? It's not looking so good. So now after that, it's probably good to reevaluate and be like, okay, we should try something else. Um, so yeah, I think I've definitely come around to them. I don't know. But there's a bit of a truth on both sides. We need a bit of everything. Um, but yeah. Who knows? What about you, Amy? Yeah. Interesting. I, I feel like same kind of angry vegan journey and then, um, yeah, just exposure to the Humane League <laughs> and um, going through the interview process for working for the org. Um, was that, was that actually... one of the key questions? Are you a welfareist? And yeah. you say yes, and then you're in. <laughs> uh, well, I guess not, because I think at that time I would have said no. So, um, yeah, maybe wouldn't have got the job. But I think, um, yeah, I think just feet. Be- you know, the, the pragmatism, um, Vicky, you know, um, Vicky Bonnell, the, the president of the Humane League, um, in those leadership meetings in the UK, really convincingly, um, just bringing that pragmatism to the conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I actually lost a, a friend, um, by joining the Humane League, I was doing corporate relations, going to the meetings with Nestle and um, working really closely with Aaron. And she just couldn't comprehend in any way how I, would go to a meeting with you know the devil on the other side and those that were you know um were harming the animals and and really just couldn't come to terms with uh with yeah me me doing that job and being in the room um with the enemy so it's definitely still yeah it's, it's heated in terms of future things of animal movement what are you particularly excited about dave in terms of strategies to help animals whether it's welfare whether it's whatever you want um yeah what are you most looking forward to or keen to try out Let's see. Well, I, I think first I would say that I really agree with the comments you just made about the kind of um, combined arms approach that we should have. Like, I, I don't I don't think that uh, it's correct to just take this maximizing approach of looking for the best strategy and then put all of our resources into that. I think it's really about looking at the various kinds of strategies. So, you know, you could there's a lot of ways you split this up, but you could think about like, there's like the public sector stuff of like doing politics or, or uh, lawsuits or, or things like this. Then you've got like the private sector with the corporate campaigns and scaling up meat alternatives and, and corporate responsibility stuff and investor outreach. And then you've got like education, media, documentaries, public opinion shift kind of stuff. So these are like three lanes you could divide things up to. And then I think you take something more of a maximizing approach. Like what would be the kind of optimized version of each of these kind of elements and how do we make sure they're working together well so to me this is what's most exciting is like this kind of more grand strategy question of like what what uh what should we be doing here what's the right uh carving up of resources here and and what's like uh you know just doing more experimentation in each of these areas so um that that's probably what in general i think about but in terms of some specific stuff, I'll say that I think I am probably unusually excited compared to most people about um, political work in the U.S. I think that building up a strong political movement, I mean, I, I'm excited about it everywhere, but that's you know where I live and, and <laughs> I think about mostly uh, politics. Um, so that's something that I think is 
underserved right now in the movement. It's under-resourced, not enough happening. Like there are some little pockets where cool stuff is happening that to me are a nice like proof of concept. Uh, but that's something I'd like to see scaled up considerably. And what do you mean by political work exactly? When is that, what does that actually look like in practice? Yeah, well, um, it could look like a lot of things, but I'll say I think in like for starters, having local um, voting blocks and political organizations, like we have a group here, I live in New York City in Brooklyn, there's a group called um, VFAR, Voters for Animal Rights, that is like the local group. And they do things like send out questionnaires to all the politicians who are running and ask them like, do you think we should ban mutilations without painkillers? Should we ban putting animals in cages barely larger than their body? And so, you know, we've got a lot of issues that are like slam dunks. You know, <laughs> where if you're talking to someone who's running for office and they're not like actively employed by a factory farm, they're probably going to agree with us on it. Um, so to me, this is just like, it, it's so impressive uh, what they've been able to do, just getting all of these candidates to uh, agree to, to so many of our issues. Mm. And people are actually agreeing. They are kind of saying, yes, we'll support this. Yeah. Oh, big time. Oh, really? Big time. Wow. And they have a voting block. They'll say like, you know, we, we have animal people who are activists who can go out and knock on doors and do other things. And like, this is not rocket science, like a million other movements and cause areas and uh, industry groups have done this. Um, and we're just leaving a lot of influence on the table. And this is something where I think the grassroots power that the animal movement has um, is really underutilized. You know, we are similar to a cause like, say, abortion or gun rights, where we have something called intensity of preference, where for the people who are animal people, this is their issue. Like it is not just one of a million issues. It's just like, think of all the people, you know, in the animal rights movement, like this is not like one of 10 movements that they're in. Like they are focused on animal rights. They will knock on doors. I mean, hell, they'll chain themselves to slaughter equipment, right? So like- <laughs> They'll do much more than I, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, to me, this that kind of thing uh, would be just like step one. Like we should just be doing that in every major city. Mm, so that, so you mean like have one group who's kind of contacting all the politicians, trying to get them to kind of say their policy preferences and then basically on the best kind of candidates, get the animal- all animal people in the city basically canvas for them and try to get votes kind of to the most animal friendly person. Is that kind of vaguely what I mean, quite keen to see? That would be, yeah, that's certainly a big part of what local groups can do. I mean, there's all sorts of things though. You can do local ballot initiatives in some cities. You can get city councils to change their, pur I mean, some of this is happening in, in various areas uh, to change their purchasing policies. You can have people run eventually uh, for some of these seats. I mean, one thing that's always struck me is that the UK they have uh, these like animal welfare policy briefs, uh, the animal welfare agenda, I think it's called that the major parties, including the Tories, they put one out where they list like, here's our policy position on all these relevant issues, like on confinement. Yeah, their manifestos. Mm. And in the US, like, we don't even exist as an issue for the Democrat for, for the Democratic Party, let alone the Republicans. I mean, it, it was last year that uh, Biden's solicitor general wrote a, uh, a he, he supported the the pork industry in our Supreme Court case on Prop 12. And to me, this was like a, a very sobering wake up call that not only are we not like uh, influential with the Democratic Party, we they wouldn't even think for a second that we exist because we're not we don't have a, a voting block. We're not part of their base. Like we don't we're not even an issue. We're not on the menu. So I think like a realistic achievable goal could be like, how could we have a plank in these parties, or at least in the Democratic Party, 
of their position on at least some basic stuff like confinement. Like we've banned confinement in, in you know, over 10 states now. Like this seems like achievable. What about like testing cosmetics on animals or, you know, fur? You know, there's probably some stretch stuff we could do. Like this seems like a realistic goal. And it's just like, why, you know, we, we need to start organizing around this kind of stuff. We need to really have this power. We've already, we've gotten all these corporations to do it. We've done a great job with corporate campaigns um, in the private sector. And now it's time, I think, to capitalize on that and start, you know, if like, if McDonald's can say that cages are on the way out, like, shouldn't the Democratic Party be able to say this? Yeah. Right. And, and, and maybe and you might have a bit of a spicy take on this, but do you think, um, as allies, the kind of left-leaning or Democrat kind of groups is a much more clear, obvious ally? Or do you think we should be trying to be as bipartisan as possible? Or do you think that's, that's just not realistic? Or, yeah. Yeah, I. so this is a debate that comes up a lot around these questions of like, do what is the cost of becoming a kind of like left-coded cultural issue? Um, and is it better to not fully engage with one part or the other? So it's very complicated. I mean, I think realistically... Um, we are already a left-coded cultural issue. I mean, if you look at just like everything from Michelle Obama saying kids should eat more vegetables to, you know, we're going to have a veggie burger in a government building once a month, like the, the explosions that come from these things from the right, it is so clearly a left-coded issue to that faction that I think it's a little bit of wishful thinking that like there's this huge opportunity for us to become part of the like, uh, masculine right-wing identity in the U.S. or something like this. Um, on the other hand, I, I do think that avoiding where we can uh, on many of our kind of like single issue campaigns we can run, there is no reason for it to become like a third rail cultural thing. So uh, particularly around issues like confinement or slaughter or, or like cruel treatment of animals, I do think that there's just huge bipartisan support. So there's no reason for it to become a, a uh, I, I think it's more issues related to diet that I see as becoming extremely partisan very quickly and out of our control. So I do think that there's no need to uh, kind of code things in one direction or the other on, on many of the issues we're on. And, and essentially, because everyone agrees with us, you know, basically all the voters agree with us. Um, yeah. And, and speaking of Aiden and Paxman, I know that they've done a lot of really interesting focus group uh, work that relates to these. So I, I won't speak for them. But for those who are interested in learning more about this, there's good amount of research that's coming out now but i mean look at look at the ballot initiatives we run we get people from both parties to vote to ban cages uh in, in their in their states you know this is not like a super controversial issue right so um i guess comparatively then to other movements what do you think it is that we're missing are we is it just a timeline that we're just you know still such a, a new movement really in the in the grand scheme of things is it the level of resource um what do you think those key pieces are that we're missing comparatively? I mean, those are definitely two factors. I think one reason that it has been slow to build is just a, a fundamental challenge kind of baked into what we're trying to do is that there's no natural organizing community that animal rights is based off of, you know, it's it's fully a uh, an ally based movement, right? Like we're helping others. We're not advocating for ourselves or our own rights. And you know, civil rights had the black church in the United States. Uh, same sex marriage had just the kind of organic LGBT community that existed, especially in all these like major cities and, and important um, places around the country or around the world. Um, 
we have what like i guess we have veganism is has kind of been the the communal principle which is not you know this is like very weak compared to those other things there isn't a place where we all organize in person we don't do things where we have fun together um in, in like a, a natural way i mean if you look at what like if you look at the civil rights movement um the church community would provide so much uh kind of cohesion and support and activity outside of just purely doing politics if you look at the nra and their success organizing the united states you've seen the same thing you know for every one time the nra is asking you to to speak to your congressperson they're engaging with you many times in other ways you're going to gun shows you're receiving magazines they're helping build this identity build this community where you have a sense of like this is really who i am and, and one thing that's being asked of me is doing this political work and i think that we're either you know, just based on diet, essentially, where this can be like where you expend your energy is like this project of personal purity and being more vegan and and kind of like spreading that to other people, very consumer focused. And then you just have like the smaller group of people who are like the diehard activists, um, which is just not sustainable for most people and not attractive to most people. So I think to me, this is like the foundational challenge that we have is that we just don't, I mean, we, what do we have like vegan restaurants, right? This like, this sucks. Compared to, it's whoa, the whoa. They're pretty good. All right. You back up. <laughs> um, what do you think? What do you think is the alternative then? Are you thinking like vegan gun shows, vegan clubs, vegan unions? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Veganize everything. <laughs> or just like something for animals was like, well, yeah, what does it actually look like? What would that kind mm. of community hub actually look like? Do you think? Yeah, well, I wish I had a really good answer to this. I mean, I think that step one is kind of grappling with this problem and finding something. Um, I, I think we need to start experimenting a bit more. I will say, going back to the um, the local political stuff, I think this is something where you can build like a more sustainable kind of community. It's not too crazy of an ask for people, and it's um, you know you know something that they can engage with as part of their their normal life and still make a pretty big impact um, and getting, you know, just getting people more involved on that local level. But it, it's a, it's a real challenge. I'm not exactly sure to be honest. I mean, I think we could go a long way towards having more kind of exciting events and accessible events and, and conferences that people gather together in. I think that just getting the community together in a more and more accessible way um, is really important. And right now, just so much of what's done is targeted towards people like us who are all just, you know, just like die hard in the movement, you know, we know all the people. I think it's quite intimidating if you're just like a new random person to walk into um, that kind of space and feel like, how do I get involved without, you know, for, forsaking um, all, all of modern life and becoming one of these crazy people? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe like tangentially related to that is I, I know you have this thing. Maybe do you think like how tied do you think is like salary in organizations, something like this? Because I think maybe we've had a previous chats a little bit about like there's always a bit of like oh you if you get paid so much you're not really doing it for the animals yada 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 but i think you've had some previous points it's been like well we pay so much less compared to other kind of like social justice issues or like climate and are we failing to attract the right people uh or just like a broad sweep of people uh because we traditionally either like try to, I don't know, depress salaries, not have that much funding, or yeah, do you have any thoughts on like, do you think this is like a bad for people to get involved with the movement? Or do you think like this just isn't one of the bigger issues? Or yeah, what do you think? Well, I mean, it, it certainly is a barrier for people to get involved. In the There's no question about that, that like, it's hard to hire people if your salaries are super, super low. Um, I don't, I'm not gonna pretend like I have a, this is a complicated question that I don't have the perfect answer to, because 
there are real costs to like over professionalization and over, I don't know, like just having a few super large NGOs who are kind of like sclerotic and captured by the, the needs of the organization running everything. So like, you know, there's plenty of examples of uh, movements or groups that have become like that. Um, on the other hand, I think what needs to be avoided is among activists, this like um, valorization or martyrdom of like, if you're not sacrificing everything, you're not <laughs> hardcore. You know, if you want to have <laughs> any elements of like a normal life or comfort or happiness, then you're forgetting the uh, the suffering of the billions of animals. And that this is just too, like the more we can do to lower the bar for involvement in the movement. Like right now, what we're asking people is, you know, you're going to make very little money. You're going to be vegan. You're going to be like constantly faced with uh, these uh, images and videos of suffering. And like, it's just all these things that are incredibly unappealing to people. Um, and again, like look at the NRA. It's like, what are they focused on? Like, how do we make this as appealing and fun for our members? Like, how do we make this like a, a meaningful part of their life that they get a kick out of and enjoy and make friends through? And, you know, there's certainly argued, I'm not trying to just like trash the animal movement. There's a lot of incredible reasons to join. Like the, the reason that all of us are here is like the, uh, all the positive parts of it. But I think, you know, we, we need to, as strategists, grapple more with like, how do we lower the bar for involvement and really get away from this like puritanical thinking that so many people in the movement are obsessed with, where it's just like, the anxiety that I'm sure you two have experienced this, you meet people who just started working at a group or volunteering at a group, the anxiety people feel about being like found out like, oh, I still have these, these leather shoes and I wore them to this event because I got them before I went vegan. And like, so like I, I've heard so many stories like, like this is insane. Like this is not a good way to operate. Mm. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I feel like I have a funny anecdote from that. It's, I think I'd done like a couple of years of animal rights activism with the groups like Anonymous the Voiceless, like the classic vegan outreach, all that good stuff. And then I remember, yeah, it's all very serious. People all wearing dark clothes, all wearing black, watching sad footage. It's pretty intense. And then I remember going to one of my first uh, climate protests in the UK with Extinction Rebellion and just being like, wow, people are like happy and smiling <laughs> and like having a good time. Like, whoa, this is like crazy. Like you can actually do activism and care about things care about political issues and not be like sad i was like oh <laughs> so yeah i would love some more of that if we could yeah because yeah, people stick around for the social relationships you you join for the issues but you stick around because you meet great people you actually have a good time you you born you form meaningful relationships and yeah i think we need to have that kind of offering as well as the the importance of the moral issue which is obviously super important which is yeah we wouldn't be here in the first place if it wasn't for that maybe i'll pick up on a book recommendation that you gave me dave like maybe a few months ago i don't know if you remember i asked for a few book recommendations and you said engines of liberty which i which i'm actually reading i'm about like a third of the way through it's a great book um but maybe do you want to take you want to say what are some cool takeaways for you from that book or what it's about and just why you think it's relevant to the animal rights movement yeah yeah i i highly recommend it uh to to all activists to check out it's just very inspirational it's an easy read as well it's definitely written um, in, a, in a pretty engaging way. So it's a history book that covers um, the fight for same-sex marriage in the U.S., um, the, the shift in gun rights in the U.S., uh, as well as a fight over um, a torture uh, in, in the United States. So kind of three different activist movements that were successful in changing the Constitution or the way the Constitution was viewed. 
Um, and in particular, the sections on the NRA and gun rights and the fight for same-sex marriage, I found to be uh, really inspirational in that like the the shift in public opinion on these issues was so rapid and so complete. Just like everyone thinks one thing. And then if, you know, a few decades later, everyone thinks the other thing. And it's politically unfashionable to think the old thing. So for people like us working on a, a, a what is essentially a fringe issue like animal rights, like this is uh, inspirational stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, it also encouraged me to read uh, the history book that came out recently by a journalist called Sasha Eisenberg called The Engagement about same-sex marriage. So for folks looking for a kind of deep dive on that, uh, it's a it's a very long and dense history book. It's a great read, but it covers like every little detail of the fight for same-sex marriage, both sides in the United States. It is, it is uh, one of my favorite all-time books now for sure. So it's a must read. Um, but yeah, so, so some of the lessons that I think from that book that stuck with me. And I'll be curious to hear, James, like what, what you're thinking so far. Um, but I think when it comes to, um, you know, the things I mentioned with the NRA, the the use of local activists to get these kind of small, um, almost symbolic political wins at the early stage of their project and building that up over time into kind of cascading larger political victories, I thought was a very interesting approach where these activists really developed a lot of skills and influence over time. And that was paired with this really shrewd long-term legal strategy where they would have scholars go into law schools and start lecturing, promoting what was essentially then a very fringe point of view on the interpretation of the Second Amendment. I mean, if you talk to, at least what the book says is, if you talk to conservative um, legal scholars back then when this project was starting, even pretty right-wing scholars would say like, oh yeah, the Second Amendment is really meant for, you know, local militias and so on. And it's not super relevant to, you know, like uh, consumer gun culture and so on. And now they've just completely shifted through this uh, approach of going into law schools and converting all the young people to this way of thinking. Like, no, actually, this is a amendment that should be interpreted uh, very broadly that, you know, all sorts of guns are allowed and so on. And they've just through this kind of targeted education, lecturing, focus on students, completely shifted a generational point of view. Um, so I think that this is a really, really interesting strategy that animal people should consider. And I, I'm actually pretty excited about all the the law schools where we have a lot of great education going on now. But beyond that, I think like we could do more um, with students generally. So yeah, th those are two parts from the, the NRA section that I um, really took a lot from. Hmm. Maybe one thing I'll pick up on that. So on the first point you were making, it was something like the NRA were doing things to basically just get wins rather than like, they didn't think, oh, maybe achieving some particular policy was like the best way to have, um, I don't know what the gun policies are in the UK, just like the ability to, to carry weapons openly, yada, yada, yada. Um, but they were just doing things just like build momentum, both like internally and build power and just like kind of have wins. Is that kind of like the thesis of just like you do things as like stepping stones, even though it's not like the most important thing for your issue? Well, so if I'm remembering, yeah, I haven't read this book in a few years, but if I'm remembering correctly, some of the early projects that they had were having like super local volunteers get change kind of citywide restrictions on what kind of handguns were allowed or something where this is not like at the end of the day, um, a massive win. But over time, you start chipping away. You get. I think in the animal movement, there could be a lot of analogs here, like the fur bans, I think are a great example, where right now, if you were to ask, like, how do we ban fur in the United States, or like ban the production and sale of fur? It's a, it's a tall order. I don't know. It's very challenging. 
But you could imagine a world where like, okay, how do we ban fur in like the 50 largest cities in the United States? Then all of a sudden, you know, that's that's an interesting question. That's something you could actually sit down and like get a Google Doc going and really think about maybe actually getting to like 40 out of 50 in the coming years. And then all of a sudden you're a lot closer to like banning it in a number of states, getting closer to that federal action. And like that kind of mindset, I think, would be quite useful, that really long term planning. Um, and frankly, you saw a lot of this with the same sex marriage fight as well of like, how are we going to run the table on all the states? Um, and, and I think that that's something that I'd love to see more of. I mean, it's something that's been happening on on the cage free law, certainly. Um, and we're starting to see with some citywide regulations, but it's just the animal movement traditionally is not engaged a lot with that kind of long term political thinking, at least as a cohesive coalition. I'm, I'm sure many individuals or individual groups have. Do you think there's other tactics that we're that we could also explore? I think we touched on before, like you're excited to see a, I guess, a, a diversification of tactics. Do you feel like there's anything else we can pull on um, within this movement that you'd be excited to see more, or is it just generally the the, the act of diversification? Um, I mean, some of the areas where I think we are not doing quite enough experimentation is. Um, around kind of like media and public persuasion. I think w- one unfortunate thing that happened among the like, I don't know, the uh, the pragmatist side of the movement or whatever we're going to call it now, <laughs> was that there was this over the last 10 years, a, a real shift towards institutional work. Like, okay, we have been trying the kind of vegan outreach advocacy side of things for so many years. The numbers game isn't working. We're not seeing the huge uptick. Um, let's focus on these incremental reforms at institutions. Now, obviously, I think that that's like a key pillar of what we should be doing. But I do feel like we threw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. Like, um, you know, persuading people of things is still really good. It's it's still it's still a good thing to do. And just because we might not want to be just like using all of our time handing out booklets anymore, I do think that um, we haven't done enough experimentation with all sorts of public persuasion. I mean, for starters, like the movement just isn't terribly sophisticated in our media outreach. Like, I think we have an issue that um, there's a lot of opportunity out there for media coverage that we're leaving on the table because we just aren't spending enough time experimenting. Um, And and so there's plenty of groups that have done things that have gotten awesome coverage in the last years. But to me, this is almost just proof of like, yeah, this is possible. This could be a winning issue and we need to devote more time. Um, And there's a lot of things within that realm of kind of public persuasion. It's not really my expertise. So I don't have like a kind of ready to go plan. But it's just an area where clearly we could be doing more, I think. Um, and, and I wish that we were doing more. Mm. Um, so, what do you think is holding that back? Why, why do you think we're not doing more? Is it just like funding isn't there for it? Or just like we don't have the talent? Or yeah, what do you think that bottleneck is? Um, I mean, it's probably just like, an area that hasn't grown enough yet. I, th- I mean, there, don't get me wrong. Like, listen, there's people who, like DXC is a, a great example of a group that gets a ton of media coverage and without too much funding either. So um, I'm not, I, I, I certainly don't mean to uh, say that it isn't happening at all. But I do think that, um, I do think it would be good for more funding. And I guess just more than funding, just like the interest of uh, activists coming into the space to get more involved in, in, working on media, coming up with media pitches, crafting stories for media. And again, like this is just a component of like an overall strategy. So to me, the dream is like the grassroots are doing actions and investigations that can get a lot of media coverage. And that this is like 
dovetailing with a, I don't know, state ballot initiative effort or something. Like you can imagine a world where it's like the component pieces are creating something um, that as a whole is greater than and than just the parts put together. Um, so to me, that would be like the really, really sweet element. Yeah, I think there's definitely some good opportunities for like this inside outside game collaboration, whether it's like, yeah, people doing investigations and the more grassroots stuff and then, yeah, the corporate campaigns. Yeah. And I want to pick up on one thing you said, which was, I don't know, I, I was like hunch where re- reason why maybe we went away or like we're still not doing much of the media stuff is that it's just really hard to measure, right? It's just really hard to to know how useful loads of press coverage, like a documentary, like a TV show about a particular issue is. And I think, especially within maybe more like pragmatic, or maybe you might want to say more like effective altruist leaning people, like obviously there's a big focus there on like measurability. And do you think that's one thing that's holding back the media service because it's like hard to gauge exactly how well it is and corporate campaigns have a really good track record of like actually averting quite huge numbers of chicken years of suffering per dollar. So yeah, do you think that's a component in this? Uh, completely. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like when I'm uh, talking to the more like EA minded or whatever you want to call it, folks, I'm I'm often very kind of frustrated that the the measurability bias that comes out where it's like a lot of the strategic thinking to me is so bounded by what is measurable and how do we compare that to these kind of like safe bets, like a um, where we can really get a sense of like how many animals are impacted. And then on the other hand, when I talk to folks who are uh, outside of that world, it's the opposite response of like, well, how are we going to measure this? And how are we going to have any sense of whether it's working? So I, I think we really need um, a balance. And I think what I guess what I'd like to see is definitely more open mindedness from the uh, metric heads and then <laughs> uh, well, this, this is the new debate forget about wealth versus abolition yeah exactly. metric heads and hate data <laughs> yeah and i think yeah for the for the other folks i think what happens is the reaction of some of the people who are yeah like in the other camp of like the that kind of anti-ea camp that you would see um instead just a total rejection of the premise like to me the 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 essential contribution of ea in general, but especially to the animal movement, is just this like this harsh reality that most charities and most campaigns are incredibly ineffective, and that some of them are just like a thousand times more effective than others. And I think that this kind of pearl of wisdom is something that we we should not lose sight of. Um, so it doesn't mean that we should have like a totalizing obsession with um, a, a spreadsheet that tells us exactly what to do at all times, and like all resources go towards that one thing on the spreadsheet. But instead, um, I think we need to increase the level of rigor of like, okay, this is an experimental campaign, but like, here are the leading indicators of success. Here are the things we can measure. Like, if this is a a campaign focused on getting media, sure, it's really hard to tell, like, how many hearts and minds have we changed? But you can tell if something's working or it's not in in other ways. So I think like, it's about a mindset of like commitment to, to measurement. And also, I think setting out goals of like, this will have been successful if, you know, X, Y, and Z things happen. If that doesn't happen, saying like, okay, let's try something else. What you always see instead is like the inertia becomes the um, the main element in like what decides next year's strategy. It's like, okay, well, we'll keep doing this thing and we'll grow it incrementally by 10%, <laughs> no matter what. That's kind of like the status quo, unless someone is there kind of like grabbing you by the shoulders and shaking and yelling in your face, like you need to decide if this is really working. Yeah, I do find it funny that like on the measurability bias, I've literally heard people be like, if it's not measurable, I don't 
care about it. And it's just like, what? But also, you, you can go too far the other way as well. I think, like you were saying, I think, like most things, the balance is good. And yeah, for me, it's just like, I would just be so surprised if all the best things were measurable. Like, that just seems so convenient to that worldview. And I just don't think the world is that straightforward. But maybe I'll be wrong. Who knows? Well, I, I guess one thing I'll add here, one one thought I've had in the last year talking a lot to to advocates about this topic is that I think um, there's this this misapplication of the EA mindset to animals where I think where, where they got started with uh, global development and health. I think it makes a lot of sense to have this measurement and maximizing mindset because they're stepping into a uh, essentially an industry with thousands of nonprofits and hundreds of governments involved and the UN, where it's just like an endless amount of resources and people and researchers involved in this project. And in that environment, you should be doing this kind of maximizing thing where you're like, okay, well, there's 10,000 options. What are the best three? And how do we get money to them? Because everything else is funded. And like, we're just trying to like on the margin, uh, have some impact. But this is a totally different context in the animal movement, which is quite nascent, where we're still kind of stumbling around in the dark. Like we've we've discovered a few things that seem to be working, but the idea that that's what we should be doing in, I don't know, 15 years is totally not persuasive. Like we, you know, we might be doing something totally different or we should be doing 10 other things that are different. And like the idea that the first thing we discovered will forever be the best thing and that we should never experiment again is just very different than... Um, stepping into an industry that's been around forever and has tried everything. So I think that there needs to be a kind of different modes that we, different lenses, we look at different contexts through. And I think the animal movement, we need to have a little bit more of an exploratory mindset. Uh, I think obviously we need to keep doing the things that are working for sure, but not at the expense of um, trying out other stuff. And I think that like, this is where measurability bias can um, really bite us. Mm, yeah i think one last point on this topic is that yeah i just looked it up because i thought i knew this so the, the global health uh and development like uh, movement spend 3.5 billion dollars on r&d every year and for context the animal movement spends about 200 million kind of overall so that's like five percent we're five percent of their r&d budget so like they just have so much more research and knowledge information out there to actually like know what's working and we have nothing basically we have like we're working on a shoestring so yeah uh, be very surprised if we can do the exact same thing they're doing. Funnily enough, Amy, you used to co- kind of co-direct Animal Ask, so doing lots of animal research. Like, did, did you factor this into your work there, like measurability bias? Like, do you think you just did what was measurable because it was easy to do research on? Yeah, I still think, I mean, you know, it's only been functioning for like two and a half years. So I still think that's really difficult because even in the research that we suggested organizations use to inform their campaigns, those campaigns are still ongoing, right? So I think that was a challenge for us that within the EA space, um, you know, the say funders, for example, are looking for the measurements. Well, how did we influence the campaigns? How did we change animal lives? And actually, you know, it's just a much longer timeline there. Um, so I definitely think that has, um, yeah, contributed to to feeling, um, you know, sometimes like we're, we're not contributing when actually we know that is the case. It's just really difficult to prove. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely recognize that sense of... Um, maybe holding too much to the to 
the metrics and not enough uh, just knowing and trusting that what we're doing is supporting the movement with this research resource that doesn't exist. And actually, we have seen, you know, campaigns or um, interventions in practice that have a detrimental impact. Um, And so just knowing that we're ending those at least or, or trying to by, you know, making sure that organizations are, are taking, uh, you know, research into account before starting a campaign, I think, you know, could be could be proof enough for now until we have those, you know, some some figures to go off when the campaigns are coming to a close and we can really measure the impact that that's had. Nice. Yeah, maybe plug to, I think, Animal International, who I, who I think stopped their one of their campaigns in Poland, the live carp campaign, because they thought it actually might be harming more fish than it was saving. Um, but there's lots on that on the EA forum if you want to check it out. Um, so yeah, it's a good post. Maybe another controversial one, Dave. What's the view you hold that most animal advocates you think would disagree with? And it can be one you've already said. So oh, man. You, got, you, you got to think, Robbie. you can't do that same measurability or the same political stuff. It's going to be something spicy. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my easy answer as I probably named a bunch of them already. Um... <laughs> Huh. Well, I guess I don't know if this counts as a doubling down on something, but in general, like I'm, I'm very skeptical and pretty negative about veganism as an idea and principle to to found the movement on. Um, I just think that it's a really, and this is something I guess uh, Wayne from DXE wrote about uh, many years ago that I've I've really come around to. Um, that I do think that that has been. I don't know what the, a better alternative is beyond just caring about animals. Uh, um, but I think that that has been a real, um, yeah, it's been, I think, Do you think it's been like overall. harmful overall? Do you think it's like been made us focus too much on like food and consumption and identity or yeah, do you think things are actually harmful or just like not the best? I think it's really in, because it it's essentially built around this concept of personal purity that adds this kind of like fundamentalist, religious element to the uh to this like foundational piece of the identity that i think is um quite unhelpful and when i just it's there's just something missing to me where so many people are sympathetic so many people are sympathetic to our cause and 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 generally agree with most of our like political project what we're trying to achieve at least the first you know the first many steps people are really (laughs) on board with us and just the number of people who would never get on board because of veganism. I mean, this is just a huge gap to me. It's, it's something we need to address. So I don't know exactly what the solution is, but this is something I've been thinking more and more about, like this need for community, this need for stronger stronger social organization, and just the weakness of veganism as this thing that most people see as... You, know, you hear from people like who would critique this point of view, like, oh, it's actually really easy to be vegan and beans are cheap and all these things. But like, this is just not realistic for most people. Like if you, t- if you talk to non-vegans, like that is just not how they view things. Um, and this is a real challenge. And I think like, we're just leaving so much power on the table by having this small tent. Um, now, obviously like I'm vegan, so. <laughs> uh, I'm on, that that I'm would be board. controversial if you weren't. Wow, that would be. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, spicy take. Yeah, I guess that that for me is something I've really been thinking about a lot in the last year as as one of these core problems. Yeah, I was thinking how much smaller would the climate movement be if you couldn't be part of it? If you flew, had a car, ate red meat, 
it basically did like so many things it would be probably much smaller much less politically active and like serious relative to what it is now but there's no clear defining line if you care about climate change you're in um, yeah yeah like what if you couldn't you know support labor unions if you ordered from amazon you know like it, it's it's a really high level of demanding uh demanding this there was an interesting uh, conversation recently about um, organizations and actually hiring um, whether you have to hire vegans, right, in in the movement, and if um, not doing so. So maybe we could fill a, a talent bottleneck um, if we hired from, you know, outside people who are just sympathetic to the cause, but maybe, um, you know, not as... Uh, I don't know, not not vegan. I don't want to say not as not as committed because I, I think that goes against the the arguments we've just made. But um, yeah, do you feel like at THL was there ever a sense of you know this kind of like mission drift? Do you think there's risk in in opening the movement up um, to to that? Well, I, I think that you know there's definitely a gap here. I'm I'm less concerned about professional people working in the movement. My guess is like most of those people are probably going to be vegan. And if they don't, if they're hired when they're not vegan, they'll often become vegan very quickly. Like, I think that that is just such a strong part of the culture and, and all the groups that I, that seems less relevant to me than like people who might consider themselves like an animal activist or part of the animal movement generally. Like that to me is really the crux of the issue is like, what is the, for, for everyone to feel comfortable, like, oh yeah, this person's part of the team. What is the threshold they have to cross? Um, that to me is really what I'm interested in because I think there's always going to be that core hardcore cadre of people and they're going to have, uh, you know, a, a really intense level of commitment, but you know, for the, yeah, for like people, uh, James, to your point, like who might say like, oh yeah, like I'm an environmentalist. Like what, you know, you don't want to totally water it down because for a lot of people that probably means almost nothing, but like, I think we, we, we can afford to move a little bit more in that direction. Um, of like letting people feel like part of their identity is like, oh, I'm a voter who cares about animals and I'm always going to vote in their defense, even if uh, they're not like fully on board in all the ways that we wish they were. Like that that to me is where I think we could expand the the tent quite a bit. I, I certainly don't, I'm not saying like, you know, lead, strategic leadership of the movement <laughs> should really be <laughs> uh, like watered down. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Mm, the bar's yeah. pretty high. What's one positive bit of news in the animal world you're excited about or you're grateful to hear? Um, let's see. Well, I guess um, recently the the milestone reached by the Open Wing Alliance of the was it three thousand corporate victories achieved around the world. I mean, it's just like that. That personally was very exciting and gratifying and, and awesome to see. And I think even if you're someone who's not super excited about those campaigns uh, as a strategy, what it does show is the power of a coalition of groups coming together and sharing resources and where like a little bit of resources can go such a long way. And where like e this is just an achievement in terms of like this is a, a major project that animal people took on together and have been really successful in. And, and it's created, I think, a lot of feelings of camaraderie across the movement, this kind of culture of sharing um, and, and succeeding together. So to me, th that kind of thing is, is super exciting. Um, it's been great seeing, um, in New York, the hospital system, uh, as well has, you know, dramatically decreased their, um, meat served and, and greatly increased like plant-based options. Um, and uh, like th that to me is a, 
uh, a great example of the kind of local political achievements that we can think about um, in, in the near term future as like a kind of like a high watermark right now of uh, a really great policy. Um, yeah, so th those are two things that immediately come to mind. Nice. And there's those out there because, yeah, well, yeah, 3000 wins is pretty crazy. I think even just having a coalition that's so big and functioning and isn't a total nightmare in terms of everything. I think it's very impressive. Like that alone, <laughs> just like surviving, it is pretty good for a big coalition. But I think having 3000 wins is, yeah, pretty remarkable. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, nice. And then we've um, talked about the Engines of Liberty um, and a, a couple of other resources, but is there anything else, any recommendations for listeners? So books, blog posts, podcasts, um, anything that's particularly inspired your journey? Um, let's see. Well, I mentioned the engagement. Uh, that's a super high recommendation on same-sex marriage. Um, I really recommend this group called How Organizations Develop Leaders. Um, by uh, a researcher named uh, Hari Han, I think is how you pronounce uh, her name. Um, and it's a very data-driven research book on what the title says, how organizations develop leaders. And it looks at a lot of different grassroots groups and, and NGOs of different sizes. And it just categorizes the different ways that activists develop skills. So, you know, there's like the lone wolf model, uh, kind of rock star person doing their own thing. How do they develop skills? Or the people who, you know, have more traditional management-based models and so on. And she just goes step-by-step step explaining in great detail how effective these things are. Um, and for anyone who works with volunteers um, or if their org works with volunteers, this is like a must-read. It's just such a goldmine of, of information. It's so practical. Um, so that one I... I'm really excited about. I, I will throw um, a small I, correction. It's actually called How Organizations Develop Activists, Not Leaders. Ah, um, yeah, but I agree. I've read it. It's a great book. So I also recommend it. It's awesome. That. Sorry, yeah. keep going. <laughs> um, another book that I only stumbled across like, I don't know, two years ago. It's an older book. I don't, I don't know when it's from, but it's, it's certainly before I got started in the movement, I think. Um, it's called Get Political for Animals and Win the Laws They Need by Julie E. Lewis. Um, and it is just, uh, it's like a textbook, basically, that step-by-step step tells you exactly how to do all the political organizing stuff I was talking about before. It, it explains, like, all the levels of government you need to know, everything you need to do, what the strategy should be. I mean, it's like, uh, it's unbelievable. And I, as many activists as possible should own this book in the animal movement. I think it's just an incredible resource that exists. Um, so that, that's another winner. And outside of that, I'll say I love reading history books in generally, uh, either like biographies or um, history of, of other social movements or important moments in history. There's just always incredible lessons. And I think getting perspective outside of our little world is, is really good and useful just for thinking about problems. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's good, inspiring three books to read. Um, so yeah, thanks, Dave, for coming on the podcast. Our first guest, very exciting. Um, <laughs> yeah, so thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast chatting with you guys. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more episodes. Mm -hmm.